great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. Yeah, it's exciting. I, I would expect that the work productivity level in Canada is going to go to the uh, same levels as March Madness in the U.S. There's going to be very few people getting any work done uh, while this is going on, but it's exciting. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the other factor too is, you know, what if uh, a team has uh, a positive, you know, infection for a player or two players or three players? And if it's a top player, that could change the whole landscape of the series. So, so that part, you know, is, is a major factor that's likely, hopefully doesn't happen, but could happen. Uh, then that that could really affect, you know, it could affect the odds of anybody kind of either winning it or, or getting knocked out. So it, it does make it kind of exciting in that sense that uh, right now there's, there's not much disparity between, you know, who could win the cup and who's going to get knocked out in the first round. Hello there and welcome to episode 51 of Sports and More, the podcast. My name is Dean Millard, and that was the voice of Elaine Wall, NHL agent from Wall Sports Group. A terrific conversation we had about uh, the NHL return to play and the role of an agent, which has changed quite a bit over the years. This is Sports and More, where almost anything goes. For the most part, we stay away from politics, and uh, for the most part, we stay away from religion as well. But pretty much anything else goes. Today, we're going to focus on sport. Uh, last week, we had uh, Sass Jordan, so that was the and more portion, and I'm looking forward to having more musicians and artists and, and um, not just sports-minded people on down the road. So uh, with Elaine Watt today, we're going to talk about uh, the NHL return to play, what hub city life might be like for the players, the tournament format, and as mentioned, the role of an agent uh, who is sometimes a confident, uh, sometimes uh, has to give uh, financial advice or oftentimes gives us financial advice because they're trying to protect the player. Uh, He has a hilarious story about attending Winnipeg Jets camp and, uh, and getting cut by Mike Smith. Oh my goodness. Uh, I'll just, uh, Mike Smith, Winnipeg Jets, classical music. You'll hear the story. It's it's hilarious. He also uh, was a member of the 1994 silver medal Olympic team. That was the Forsberg game, if you remember. And we'll play word association with some of his uh, Canadian teammates. So looking forward to uh, having uh, bringing you that conversation with Lane. It was a, a lot of fun today. Uh, okay, our top three, uh, courtesy of Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. Fantasy sports are awesome. I'm so looking forward to real sports coming back so I can try to win my fantasy leagues, whether it's baseball, hockey, football starting up. Uh, It's awesome. And fantasy hockey is even better with Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports. It's more realistic than ever. You can own a team if you can convince one of the only 31 owners to sell. Falling short of that, you can become a scout. Exactly what I said. You can scout for a fantasy hockey league because in our league we have to bid on the uh, young players that coming up uh, through a uh, weighted lottery system that does reward uh, the teams that uh, miss the playoffs but 
we bid on those players and then the money raised from that goes to the scouts that found them. So it's so cool. You can find list players and make money when they are drafted. In this format, you own the game, so get in the game. www.uffsports.com. So our top three today is who do you think are the best or favorite, whichever way you want to go, NHL players to ever wear the number 19. And the reason I'm going with that is because it's Burnaby Joe's 51st birthday today. So, Joe Sackick, pretty awesome player to wear number 19. I want to know who are your top three NHL players to wear number 19. Hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard, and give me your top three. So, I'm not putting Joe Sackick in this category because he's the topic of it, but he certainly would be uh, one or two. Uh, My honorable mention is Eric Nestorenko. Uh, if you don't know who that is, you haven't watched the movie Young Blood nearly enough. Because I am all about the movie Young Blood. So Eric Nestorenko was the father of Dean and Kelly Youngblood. And he also played in the NHL. He played for the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, which is where he wore number 19. So that's why Eric Nestorenko um, is my honorable mention when it comes to NHL players that have worn number 19. Number three for me is Brian Trache. Uh, Not just because he is so funny uh, in the Brian Bellows uh, chirping video on YouTube um, in his high-pitched voice, but also because he was he was an excellent excellent player uh, a dominant player Stanley Cup champion a legend um, you know a key cog of those Islanders teams and you know then went and had success uh, with the Penguins so Trache is number three for me number two is Big Bird Larry Robinson if you were lucky enough to watch Larry Robinson uh, play in his prime uh, then you know you know the impact that this guy had. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? He was so tough. He was so good defensively. And he did at times uh, score some points on those Canadian teams. So Big Bird, I am. I was such a, you know, I was, I was much too young to really understand uh, when I would, you know, watch him as a kid. But the more older I got and I watched back on some of those games and some of those di- dominant Montreal Canadian teams, man, he was just uh, he was just amazing. Uh, you know, and then went on to have some pretty good success behind the bench. And number one is Steve Eiserman. No Joe Sackick in this one because he's the uh, reason for the poll being at his birthday. And so you got to go with Stevie Y. Um, just, uh, you know, a, a terrific offensive talent that learned to be one of the best all-around players and, uh, you know, multiple Stanley Cup champion. Uh, so Steve Eisenman, number one for me to wear number 19. Hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard, and you can get more details at uffsports.com if you would like to become a scout in the ultimate fantasy hockey league.
By the way, I want you to check out Podcast Alley. We'll have one-timers with Elaine Waugh a little bit later on in the week. Uh, on Tracking the Draft with Craig Button, we are going to talk about a, a certain Russian goaltender who is in uh, first-round potential, maybe top-five potential, among other players, and uh, also uh, Carter Savoy. Uh, local product as well. So uh, we'll be discussing that on uh, Tracking the Draft. That'll come out Thursday uh, with myself and Craig Button. And uh, not sure if we're going to have a featured guest uh, for the Cannabis 101 podcast, uh, but we will have What's That Strain, uh, This Week in Cannabis News, and The Business of Cannabis, all our regular features. You can find all of that at podcastalley.ca. All right, Alain Waugh of the WA Sports Group, NHL agent, with some terrific stories and some very serious talk uh, about the role of an agent coming up after we find out a little bit more about him in the bio. Time for the bio. Alain Wall was born and raised in Campbellton, New Brunswick. He left home to play prep hockey at 16 years old at Rosemary Hall in Connecticut, then spent four years playing goal at Harvard, winning a national title in 1989. He was drafted in his freshman year by the Winnipeg Jets and was given the choice of joining Moncton in the AHL or the Canadian national team. He chose the Maple Leaf, but in 1994 was cut before the Olympic Games, leading him to play in Finland for most of the season. The Olympic team picked him up right before the Olympics, and he spent that time in Lillehammer wearing the Maple Leaf as a backup. He played in the Colonial League during the NHL lockout in Saginaw, Michigan, then a season back in Austria before retiring. Back in Canada, he dabbled in a tech company, but two years out of hockey brought him back. He bought Mel Bridgman's agency in 2001 and hasn't looked back since. Elaine, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. I've heard some uh, very good things from people I've talked to in the hockey world, and uh, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. How have things been for you over the last little while as we approach this return to play uh, for the National Hockey League? Well, firstly, thanks for having me on. Much appreciated. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a bit of a different world uh, for us agents out there, much as it has been for the rest of the hockey world. And I think we have existed to uh, really try to help our players figure out, uh, you know, where things are going, uh, what to expect in the next not just the next three or four months, but probably the next few seasons. Uh, not just on the, you know, as far as the, the playing goes, but also on the financial side. And also just making sure that, uh, you know, we, we have the right information passed on to our clients because uh, with the wonderful world of social media, uh, I've noticed there's a lot more misinformation that goes on and, and uh, rumors start a lot more quickly and propagate a lot quicker also. So I think that's always been a challenge for us. But yeah, our, our job has really been to, Make everybody feel like, hey, it's going to be okay, and uh, hold some hands, and uh, and you know, and, and try to explain that uh, you know there is going to be a future uh, once we get beyond this uh, this horrible virus here, and, and we can move forward. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, it has definitely been something different. And you know, we're recording this uh, on the afternoon of Tuesday, uh, July seventh. And uh, who knows what you know? There, there could be. Um, you know, uh, conference calls going on with players. Um, we know that uh, there is the uh, kind of the agreement in principle for the return to play. And and I guess, like, what is the next step right now in, in the process of, of getting this officially stamped and, and, and on the way? Yeah, so w- once the executive board gets the MOU, the memorandum of, under- of uh, understanding uh, from the league and the union, then if they feel that it's, uh, you know, passes their sniff test, then it gets passed on to the players, uh, the player population in the league. And then there'll be a vote, a ratification vote uh, that the players have to do uh, anonymously online. Uh, And uh, if uh, the vote passes through, uh, then I assume we're in business and training camp will start July 13th is the date that's being thrown out there, but nothing is set in stone yet. Um, but uh, that, that's the expectation. Well, it's amazing. Um, when you compare uh, the return to play plan and negotiation that the NHL and the NHLPA have been doing with what's happened in Major League Baseball and the amount of fighting and, and back and forth, I would say, you know, the, the hockey side of it handled it pretty well. Uh, fr- from your point of view, it, it, it didn't seem like there was a lot of mudslinging going on, maybe some concerns from some players, but compared to what happened in baseball, hockey handled this pretty well getting back into action, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I got the sense that uh, most of the people in the hockey world, the owners, the players, and management, uh, felt like they were all on a ship that was sinking and they had to find a way to get it back back afloat. But in baseball, uh, it was like the ship was sinking and they're, they're, they're throwing cannonballs at each other. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure what was, you know, I, I assume that's probably more the history of the relationship in baseball uh, versus the history of the relationship in hockey in the last few years. And, and, uh, you know, to, I, I got to give Don Fear some credit on the union side. And, and I think he has done a good job of working with Gary and finding some common ground as to, uh, it, it, to me, it seems anyways, that the mindset the last few years has been a lot more about growing the game together. And uh, that's also part of having a 50-50 system, you know, where you do have, uh, you know, a, a benefit to growing the revenue, not just for the owners, but for the players also. Yeah, no doubt. It's, it just seems like there was uh, common ground uh, between the two. So during this whole shutdown, um, you know, obviously you're not flying around and visiting players as you normally would do during games. There was so many conversations or, uh, you know, maybe some, some uh, online uh, video conferences, whatever it might have been. Right now, compared to that, what's the excitement slash concern level with NHL players? Uh, I'd imagine, you know, people are excited, but also they they have to be a little bit concerned, I would imagine, as as human beings. Yeah, I mean, player safety is number one, you know, and, uh, you know, is the protocol the right protocol? Do do players feel safe going to these, not just to their NHL city, but moving on to the hub city? And honestly, I think once the, these teams get to the hub cities, there's going to be a level of comfort as far as uh, safety goes, probably a, a bit, maybe a little bit higher level of comfort than in their NHL cities. And as you can tell by just watching the media, uh, there have been some positive cases. 
some teams, uh, just in MLB today, I was noticing that some teams shut down their practices because they were waiting for player test results and that kind of stuff. So it's concerning for everybody. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's the economics of the game and trying to save the game economically, but there's also a life and death situations and people's health, health. And, and, and uh, a lot of these guys have young families. They don't want to infect their kids or their wives. So it, it, there's a lot of factors at play. Uh, to me, you know, it, 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 it kind of convoluted things a little bit, uh, that we were voting for a CBA extension and a return to play, but in a way kind of simplified things too, because everything was put is being put on one docket. And, um, you know, I think everybody feels like they're in the same boat. And if the players choose to play and the vote goes through, uh, and the medical society and, and the government feels that it's not safe to play, uh, then likely we won't play. You know, and that's and I think we, we, we have to depend on these people to give us some guidance at some point. It's interesting. When I look at, like, the, the big picture in the next couple of years, it's a lot of hockey. Uh, you know, you're going to finish this, and then you're going to try to get a full season, another season with a, a, an Olympic break, it sounds like, and travel. So, um, you know, there is, uh, when you look long-term, um, you know, there, the, it is a lot of hockey. It's going to be compacted into a shorter amount of time. Yeah, and, and uh, that's going to be tougher for some of the older guys and create opportunity for some of the younger players. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't expect that they're going to go to expanded rosters. I think they're going to run the league the same way that they were running it before. Uh, but I do expect a lot of movement up and down for young players. And um, you know, right now, uh, there's always, you know, the last five to eight years, there's been talk the league's getting younger and younger. Well, when you throw a season and a half like this into the mix, it's only going to drive things to the young towards younger players, also because uh, you know some of these other guys that have more mileage on them, it could be tougher. Yeah, that's a, a really good point. We're, we're chatting with uh, Elaine Waugh, who is an NHL agent with Waugh Sports Group. You can follow on Twitter at RSG Hockey, uh, and you can also uh, head online uh, wasportsgroup.com. What, what do you, what are players, um, expecting? What do you think life in the, in the hub city bubble sort of thing is going to be like, do you expect players to bring families? Uh, you know, you know, what's it going to be like for single guys that are maybe used to, you know, going out and, and on off nights, it's going to be very different, isn't it? Yeah, they, they better get that fifth season of uh, Peaky Blinders out before uh, before they get to the Hub City. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot of Netflix. It's going to be a lot of guys just kind of hanging out with each other. I've heard, uh, you know, the, the possible setup for certain cities where uh, a lot of the top restaurants in those cities may kind of set up mini restaurants, like pop up restaurants in in the facilities where the players are, so they have more choices to eat. Um, I do think they're going to set up golf for certain guys, but again, uh, you know, with this tight protocol, it's going to be interesting to see how guys get out there and golf yeah. uh, without touching, you know, without really being subject to the the, the general public. Uh, you know, the families are, are, you know, in this as far as this uh, negotiation goes, the families are not part of the bubble until the semifinals and the finals. Uh, so it'll be the players in the hotel pretty much by themselves now. If they're planning on three games per day uh, for a lot of these days, uh, these guys are going to be busy. And if they're not playing, they're going to be sleeping pretty much mm-hmm. is what it sounds like. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of hockey. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because you're going to have uh, possibly a noon, a 4 o'clock, and a 7, 7 or 8 p.m. game. 
So, uh, you know, your body clock feels a lot differently. Uh, I, I remember being a player and I wasn't a big fan of the, any game before 4 p.m. So, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to how some of these guys adapt to these different uh, time changes uh, for, for the games. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't expect that, you know, there's going to be a lot of excitement there uh, as far as, uh, you know, social life. I think guys are going to be hanging out, hanging out with each other and spending a lot of time FaceTiming with their families and, and, and resting. But uh, it's going to be a pretty intense schedule, so I do I do expect that rest is going to be a big part of what they'll be doing. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, when you're talking about three games a day, when they have that the play-in tournament or whatever it's going to be called, I, I can't wait to uh, get up at uh, or turn my TV on at noon on a Tuesday and watch three games of playoff hockey. I mean, the competition level, Elaine, is going to be – off the charts everybody's as close to 100 percent as you're you're ever gonna be uh, for a playoff like whoever gets how many weeks off to rest up before the best part of it so i I think that's so exciting and 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 the tournament format adds a monkey wrench into it with the one losing team getting the first overall pick i mean there is so much intrigue around this right now yeah it's exciting i I would expect that the work productivity level in canada is going to go to the uh, same levels as March Madness in the U.S. There's going to be very few people getting any work done uh, while this is going on, but it's exciting. Uh, it, it's, you know, the, the other factor too is, you know, what if uh, a team has uh, a positive, you know, infection for a player or two players or three players. And if it's a top player that could change the whole landscape of the series. So, so that part, you know, is, is a major factor that's likely, hopefully doesn't happen, but, could happen uh then that that could really affect you know it could affect the odds of anybody kind of either winning it or or getting knocked out so it, it does make it kind of exciting in that sense that uh right now there's there's not much disparity between you know who could win the cup and who's going to get knocked out in the first round yeah, just the the fact that everybody is so healthy. I mean, and, and guys that were expecting to be out for an entire season now have an opportunity to get back into the into the playoffs. And, and that 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 what if a player or several players test positive is the is the big question mark hanging over this whole thing. I mean, d- does that team out of it? Like, do they have to quarantine? I mean, I just there's so many question marks. And and you know, maybe behind the scenes they have a lot of these answers, but. You know, you wonder what happens uh, if there's a cluster of positive tests. Yeah, I think they do have, you know, worst case scenario uh, processes in place. Uh, Whether those, you know, go through the way they plan them, I have no idea. Uh, But yeah, that's a concern, especially if if you have a couple positive tests and and they just played it against another team, then that, you know, that, that visiting team probably has to get quarantined also until everybody gets tested. So, it could create some some issues for sure. Uh, it's interesting to watch baseball and basketball, and now the MLS uh, go through the same, you know, I guess the same issues uh, and find solutions to it. But you know, at the end of the day, like I said, if if the medical society and the government decides, hey, it's just not safe for you guys mm-hmm. to be playing, you know, they could shut it down. Yep. It, it's very possible. Uh, and then, you know, it seems silly to to go to this one after talking about, you know, life and death situations, but then there's the atmosphere of games without, without fans. I mean, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, uh, many years ago, there was some sort of 
uh, broadcaster strike and the, the hockey night in Canada games were just not sound. And it was cool, but there was crowd noise. Now it's going to be like watching a game on an outdoor rink almost because you're going to hear the slap of the puck and all that stuff. Do, would you be in favor of just natural sound of the game or would you be in favor of them piping in some kind of crowd? Like if you watch any of the Korean baseball league, they got these, uh, you know, ca- cut out characters and of fans in the stands and they have music and piped in noise. What would you be in favor of? I would like the, the piped in noise. I, I think it creates an atmosphere. Uh, I think if it's just a natural sound, uh, yeah, you know, it's great. But I think even for the players, uh, they're so used to a packed arena and, and the sound of the fans. And uh, I, I think it creates that atmosphere that, uh, that you're used to mentally and psychologically playing the game. And also, if, uh, if there's no uh, piped in sound, I think some of our young viewers may learn some new four other words so, so they, may, they may want to watch that a little bit because it's going to be very clear <laughs> there's no other sounds uh, blocking it out yeah that's that's a good point but it is a good point about the players too right like you've played the game um you know you know what it's like when you're playing in front of you know five percent capacity as compared to 105 percent capacity and not to say that it makes you a better player but it does i think impact the player a little bit depending on on you know who that player is I, I do. I, I think there's a there's a bad uh, Florida Panthers joke in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, I do think that guys uh, you know perform better, especially like in the playoffs and the atmosphere is charged and it does bring you energy. It's you know it's it's that uh, that extra gear that some guys find sometimes when uh, when when they feel that adrenaline going. And I'm sure it's a little tougher to get the adrenaline going when it's an empty rink. A hundred percent. We're chatting with Elaine Waugh, NHL agent. You can uh, check out his information on the website at wasportsgroup.com. And I I wanted to ask you and and chat with you, uh, particularly on this show today, about kind of the role of the agent, because the role of the, the agent wears so many different hats. And I guess, first of all, you started in 2001. So here we are almost 20 years later. Has it changed a lot since you got into it? It has. It, it's uh, really almost like, I wouldn't say night and day, but it's evolved uh, and become more detailed and become more involved uh, than it has ever been. Uh, and one thing that drives it is the players are, you know, the, the players were recruiting. Uh, we're starting younger and younger, which I'm not a fan of. Uh, I know that uh, Sweden uh, has a rule where you, you can only start speaking to a, a kid in his family the January of, of the year he turned 16. Mm. Well, in North America, we don't have those rules. And um, that drives the market younger and younger because you, you also have more and more agents or young people trying to be agents coming out of university and uh, jumping on these young players early. So that also changes our basically our responsibility to the player. Because if you sign a kid and he's, you know, 14, 14 seems to be a very popular age because they have the underage draft in the WHL. Right. So that's a, that's a big year for kids in Western Canada. So you start talking to kids at that age, you're going to be a lot more involved on the development side. You're going to be a lot more involved on the mental coaching side, uh, the skills development, the video coaching. Uh, but then again, are you really getting the kid to commit to you or is it more as parents? Well, it's likely going to be more as parents. 
So then you have the parent, the parental involvement, which uh, sometimes is good, sometimes not so good. So, uh, you know, for us, it starts very early and probably the best way to describe kind of what our job is, is chronologically, you know, when, when from the time you're 14 until your NHL draft year, it's all about development. You know, we have camps all over North America. We have individualized skills coaches. We have individualized video work. Uh, you know, we, we really focus on developing you as a player, office training, nutritionist, mental coach, you name it, we're involved. Okay. So then once the kid either chooses, he's going to go major junior or NCAA, uh, then his draft year comes along at the age of 17 and 18. And then our job is really to promote our guys. And this year is interesting because we've had to do a lot of our promotion, uh, online, so we've, uh, we've really built a big video library of all of our NHL draft prospect hopefuls and getting it out to teams, getting it out to social media, having conversations with teams. That's a very involved year for us, for, for those players. Then once the player's drafted, you know, comes the first contract. And people always associate the contract with what that's all the agent does, but that's really kind of a small part of what we do. Then we negotiate the first contract. Then we start having a conversation about financial structure for the player, opening a bank account, buying your first car, getting your first credit card, uh, basically what's a, what's a mortgage, getting them disability insurance, making sure that they're covered with their life insurance once they start getting married and having kids, talking about prenups. Then you get into you know turning pro and starting to make real money and making sure that we help them protect that wealth. Uh, that's why we have a wealth division, We and we try to educate our players on you know, how their finances work and when they're done playing, you know, what their plan should be. Then we get into the conversation about life after hockey. and You should start thinking about a career, you know, outside of hockey before you're done playing hockey, maximize your networking and maximize your popularity. So as you can tell, you know, you start at uh, 12, 13, 14. And by the time you know it, the guy's 35 and retiring. We're still involved with his life after that. So it, it is a, uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a whole life cycle, uh, that I enjoy a lot because you kind of have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be knowledgeable in a lot of different areas and, uh, and be able to guide players in the right way. And of course there's some stuff that we outsource and we have professionals around us that help us, but, uh, but I enjoy that part of it. You know, I, I like a guy, a good example is a guy in Edmonton right now, uh, Kyle Brodjian. You know, Kyle, Kyle was with me since day one since he was, uh, uh, 16 years old and junior. And, uh, you know, now I know his wife, I know his kids. Uh, he's had a great career and it's, you know, it's heading towards the, the end. And then that's, uh, to, to me, it's fulfilling to be able to, I was there all along and, you know, it's been such a, and, and it, when I look at Kyle, I still like, it seems like it was two years ago that mm-hmm. I went to see him play in Moose Jaw, you know, like it's, uh, it flies by. Yeah, when I start seeing guys uh, retiring that I watched in junior, um, it it starts to make me feel uh, old, but also gives me a sense of appreciation of of seeing that player from uh, you know the the smallest of the small. I remember Dion Phaneuf coming to Red Deer Rebels camp for the first time and saying he wasn't going to back down from anybody, and 
he really didn't back down for a lot of people in his career. And then, you know, guys like uh, Cam Ward and Colin Fraser that I got to see in the their first career and then and then watch them through their hockey career is is uh, so cool. And and listen, like the the agent uh, when when you were in your playing days probably didn't do uh, as much as you are doing now. But it it means you're providing more of a service for a player. And you know you can you can help a player when a, when an NHL or a pro athlete suffers a severe injury, they're scared uh, because that's their livelihood whether it's their knee, their ankle. Uh, so you have to help them with injury, uh, sometimes illness. And and thankfully, more and more people are coming forward, at least maybe to you, about some mental health issues. I mean, sometimes the agent is the first person a player calls before their family. Sometimes you know that player more than their family does because there might be things they don't want their family to know. So that Thankfully, that players are reaching out more for more mental health help is something or, or maybe addiction or whatever it is. Uh, people seem to at least want to reach out for help more. And, and that's something that's probably newer to the to the agent uh, role. It is. And, and it's uh, it's an area where the league, the union, uh, pretty much everybody involved in pro sports has been a lot more attentive the last few years, uh, thankfully and have, have improved a lot. We have good resources with the union. Sadly, I, I had to live through uh, the Rick Rippon saga because uh, Rick was, was with us for, you know, ever since his junior days. Right. And, uh, you know, that was a very sad story. Uh, but, you know what, out of it came uh, Project 11, uh, right. Mind Check, two great programs that, that address uh, mental uh, mental illness issues and, and uh, you know, and, and bring resources to, to young people to feel like they can talk about these things. And, you know, it's, to me, it, it's a, the, the mental health issue is, an, is a super important one. And in all pro sports uh, is being addressed, rightfully so, uh, I, I think more aggressively, but uh, you, you can't help but think, and, and I've had this conversation with many, many sports people before, when a player comes out with a mental health issue, uh, you get support. The teams are usually pretty supportive, but there's a stigma that's attached to it. And, and I don't, I'm not so sure that most teams or management can say that that doesn't come into play when they make decisions down the line, right? Whether the guy's a UFA, whether the guy is uh, going to be resigned. And, and I don't know as human beings, if I don't think it's right, but I don't know what the solution is. And, and that's, it's an issue that a lot of people don't like talking about, but it's an important one because I, I, I do think that Rob, a guy like Robin Lehner comes out uh, mm-hmm. a very brave moment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I applaud him for it and, and got the help that he needed and, and felt like he's more in control and, and played great the next, you know, he's played great since, since, uh, since then. Uh, but, uh, th- does that come at a price sometimes? Uh, you know, and, and I don't think, uh, I don't know that people are completely honest about whether it comes at a price or not on, that are making those decisions, you know, and, and that's, that's an issue. It's a tough issue to talk about. And I'm sure some people probably get their hairs up and get nervous about, you know, that discussion, but it's real, you know, and, and I, I think, I think we're, we're being very naive if we don't think that that's real in all sports. A hundred percent. And I think uh, there's been kind of, a, uh, it's been alluded to that maybe teams do have that concern when talking to Robin Leonard about uh, a contract is, you know, is it the same as a guy 
who is uh, injury prone and only plays 45 games because he gets a bad shoulder or a bad knee? Do you, do you, do you know, is it fair to, to worry about that from a player side or, you know, is it, is it a fair thing for a GM to say, you know, am I, am I only going to have this guy for season? Is he going to break down? I don't know. I, I don't like to think of it that way. I'm, I'm someone who is on this journey with mental health. Uh, you know, diagnosed in 2013, but I look back on my life and I know it's been there uh, for a long time. And, and you know, I, when I was first diagnosed and I had a, a, you know, kind of a crash, I told nobody. I went into silence, radio silence. I, you know, was on leave from work. I wouldn't tell anybody because I was ashamed. I didn't think that, I thought something was bad about me. And then slowly over time, I've learned to talk about this more. When I was on the radio, I talked about it as much as possible and we are breaking down those barriers but I don't know what the the approach is with with mental health I I would hope you wouldn't consider it the same as a knee injury because you know this is but but I don't I so I don't know what the the answer is the, the thing I am glad about though is what you brought up Elaine is that we are talking about this more and there is more help and there is more players starting to come forward about this and when you know a 12 year old sees their idol talking about it that hey they deal with the same issues it makes it so much easier for that 12 year old to understand what's wrong with them. Yeah, we've come a long way and, and I applaud you for, for, you know, for bringing it up as, as a subject, because I, I do think that it needs to be talked about. And if you rewind things 10 years, 10 years ago from now, uh, you know, I think we've come a long way, but we're still not quite there. You know, I, I do yeah. think that there are some uncomfortable issues that, that need to be addressed and hopefully they will be. Another thing that is uh, uncomfortable to talk about, and it's being talked about a lot right now in hockey, is the the hockey culture. And it's important conversations to have. There's no uh, nowhere in any uh, sport or life for racism, in, in my opinion. And there's also no reason for hazing. And I don't know whoever thought it was a good idea uh, for some of these things to happen to make a team grow together. Because if, if that happened to me, I would resent the people that did some of these things to me. So what would be your advice to any player that came to you with hazing concerns? Yeah, I, I played through that era of, you know, it's it builds character and you got to make these guys do this and do that. And the, the biggest question is always, where's that line between, uh, you know, making you feel a little bit embarrassed but part of the team and you're mm-hmm. building character and morally destroying somebody's, you know, uh, I guess, well-being or, or, you know, stepping over that, that line and, and uh and I think it's a very fine line, and, and, I, and I do think that that's happened a lot in the last, you know, in the last fifty years of the game. I have no idea who came up with it. Uh, it's horrible. Uh, it's probably destroyed some players' careers. Uh, I know that it's destroyed some some players' uh, mental health. Uh, and uh, you know, there is no room for it. Uh, to me, it's it's they're bullies. You know, they're they're. they're they are players who get to a certain level or a certain age within a league, and they feel that it's their right to put some of these kids through what they went through. And uh, yes, they're partly to blame. And then the people who did it to them, you know, before they got there, are probably even more to blame. So it's you know, I don't know where it started, but it needs to stop. You know, and and uh, and I think I think everybody in, in the hockey world feels the same way that uh, there's a difference between showing respect to veteran players and knowing your place as a rookie and being hazed. And if guys don't know that difference, then they need to be educated.
Yeah, and and I always, you know, I've heard for so long that, you know, hockey players are the greatest athletes and, and, and greatest people. And I think a lot of them really are. And I'm not trying to paint hockey all hockey players with the brush but there is sometimes that hockey hierarchy on junior teams where the vets who maybe are draft picks feel a little bit bigger and and listen i don't think there's anything wrong with grouping some rookies together in a shopping mall and having them sing uh, christmas carols in december and maybe it makes them feel a little bit uncomfortable but they're they're kind of bonding together as uh, you know maybe getting over their fears together and you can have a laugh uh you know as opposed to not letting a player go to the bathroom on the bus or stuffing people in bathrooms like it's just I don't know. I, I it, it angers me and um and it and it disgusts me that some people can take advantage because you know if you're a 16 year old kid you're taught to just you know keep your mouth shut and 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 go along with the what the veteran is doing even though what yeah. he is doing could be like you said life life altering. It is, and and it, it often leads to them keeping their mouth shut when even worse things may have happened to them, and, and it's 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 completely wrong. And, and uh, there's no room for it in, in the hockey culture. And, and you're right, hockey players are, are great people and they're probably the toughest athletes out there when, when you think about what they put their bodies through and, and how many games they play in a season. Uh, but uh, being tough uh, and, and, uh, and having empathy and being human are, are, are two different things. You know? and, and to me, like that, that, is, uh, that is, I'm glad that it's been brought out. I hope that you know, it gets taken care of swiftly with, within all the junior leagues and the minor hockey teams. Uh, and, you know, and, and we, we just need to, to move forward and, and eradicate it from the game. Uh, you didn't go the junior route, but you did play NCAA and you won a national championship uh, in uh, one of your four years at Harvard. What do you remember about winning it all in 89? Well, we had an unbelievable team. Uh, from that team, five Olympians. On a college, on an Ivy League college wow. team, which is never heard of, uh, we were both freshman goalies. So uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure we could have had maybe a, a, a little chimpanzee in the net, and we probably would have a chance to win the championship. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave that, we'll leave that alone. Uh, and uh, ironically enough, my goalie partner I was, it was Chuck Hughes. We were both freshmen coming in. We alternated all year. I played every Friday. He played every Saturday all the way through to the finals, which is, is very rare also. Uh, we won the championship in St. Paul, Minnesota, at the old Civic Center with the clear boards. They had the glass and the clear boards underneath uh, against the University of Minnesota in double overtime. So it was an uh, emotional, very cool moment. You could have heard a pin drop once we scored that OT goal because it was pretty much all Minnesota Gophers fans in there. But uh, what, what a great experience. L- Love my four years there. It was, uh, it was really a life-changing, great, great uh, experience for me. You know, Rob Dom, when he coached the Alberta Golden Bears, did that. He would rotate his goalies Friday and Saturday. And again, they had such strong teams at the, at the U of A, and, and still do, um, that uh, I, I, you know, the goalie is the most important part. But still, they, they, there was pretty good players in front of them. Um, so during your time you get at Harvard, you get drafted uh, by the uh, Winnipeg Jets. Um, tell me about the. Uh, you're telling me a story about an interesting training camp that you guys had uh, with while your time with Winnipeg. My first NHL camp. Uh, so I, I just graduated from college in 1992, and uh, Tamu Solani's first NHL camp too. I think I think Tamu was a rookie also. We show up and uh, there's three full locker rooms, and uh, Mike Smith was the GM. 
Mike Smith, interesting guy, very, very smart man. Uh, I think, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't have proof of this, but I'm pretty sure Mike tried to move to the Soviet Union in the 1970s because he, he was enthralled with the Soviet Union. Like he, I think his, his major at Clarkson was, uh, you know, Russian studies. So uh, we show up at camp, half the camp are Russian players. We had, we had almost 40 Russian players in camp. Whoa. It was an absolute bloodbath. We had, uh, who, who was the guy? Stuart, uh, really tough guy. Anyways, it, it was honestly, I've never seen more fights in one camp. I felt bad. The Russian players, most of them didn't speak any English at all. You know, this is 1992, so they're just kind of starting to come over. And Mike just wanted a big contingency. And it was some good players. And I'll always remember, we, we used to do this drill at the end of every, of every uh, practice where uh, you would go with your line and it move the nets in. And, you know, you would skate around and uh, John Paddock would blow the whistle and you'd have to sprint, you know, for as fast as you can, for as long as you can. And you'd blow the whistle, you'd slow down. And we had uh, one group was, uh, you know, four North Americans and a Russian. And the Russian was going like full tilt all the time. And, and it's kind of an unwritten rule. Like right. when you're doing that drill, that, <laughs> like you stay at the same pace, you don't kill anybody. <laughs> so he's going around, he's going around the corner right by the net. And uh, I think it was Stuart cross checks him in the back into the crossbar, blood everywhere. Guy's forehead split open. And <laughs> he just gets over me. He's like, you got to be a better team player, buddy. You're killing us here. <laughs> and then the whole, the whole camp changed from then on. Like every, every Russian kind of knew like, okay, I, I kind of got to watch my P's and Q's here a little bit, but it was, it was a very interesting dynamic just to see how the two sides were working. And, and it was still pretty, you know, 92 is still pretty early with like, you know, the Russians, a lot of the Russians coming over and then that, that cold war kind of, you know, they just got through communism was at 1990, I think. So it, it was, uh, it was kind of, it was historic. It felt historic. Yeah. And, and uh, Mike was a very interesting guy. Uh, eccentric, a very, very eccentric guy. Whenever he would, he, when he brought me in to cut me from camp, he had classical music blaring on, uh, on his, uh, I think he had, I think he had like an old vinyl, like uh, spin top, you know? And, uh, he had classical music, but, and he was yelling, he's yelling at me over the music. Like he doesn't turn on the music <laughs> to let me know he's going to send me, send me down to the minors. And I'm like, what is going on here? This is like out of a movie. You know? That's so weird. Uh, but I love Mike. He was, yeah. He was al- always a good guy to me and, and uh, a very smart guy, but very eccentric. In his own way. Yeah. Oh man. The, the, the classical music is such a weird touch. <laughs> It was kind of creepy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's so interesting. The the thing that 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 the word the word that came to my mind is mysterious. I mean, the Russians at that point, there was no internet, right? There was still mysterious. I mean, no. t- I mean, Team Mussolini. I remember me and one of my best friends, Jeff, were in the the library at Crocus Plains High School in Team Mussolini's rookie year. And where did we get all our information? The hockey news. So we're looking at the hockey news, and Team Mussolini is listed as one of the top five paid players in the NHL that year. And they were like, who the hell is Team Mussolini? And then 76 goals later, we knew who the hell Team Mussolini was. But back then, Europeans were still a mystery. You couldn't go on YouTube and watch uh, all the highlights of uh, of uh, Yaroslav Askarov or anything like that. Like, it just wasn't known then. Yeah. Yeah, I think we take it for granted now, but yeah, it was, 
there was there was definitely an air of uh, mystery yeah. you know, when, when those guys came over. And, and, and sometimes the hype went with the player and sometimes the hype was way off, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, it was very interesting. So you're, you're with the Jets organization and they gave you a choice. You could go to the AHL, you could join the Canadian Olympic team. Uh, and, and you chose the Maple Leaf, which is great because you got to participate in the Olympics. But just, you know, putting that sweater on for the first time. I know it's cool when you can, you know, if you're a Jets draft pick and you, you put on a Jets. But when it's your country, did you get a special feeling the first time you put it on for an actual game? For sure. It's, uh, you know, there's nothing like playing for your country, especially in, in you know, international competition that, that's being watched uh, by all of Canada. Uh, that that was a great experience. It was Lily Hammer that year. That was the that was the last year that we had uh, amateur players mm-hmm. uh, until you know, we went back to it. So uh, our team was an interesting team. You know, we we had Paul Korea, we had Peter Nedved, who I have no idea how he could play for Canada because he had played for the Czechs. But Peter Nedved was on the team. Uh, Adrian O'Coin, uh, Chris Contos. It was kind of a mishmash of guys. Some young guys, some older guys. Uh, and I think going into the tournament, we were uh, ranked to finish seventh. Uh, you know, we, the pe- people that were kind of, I guess, putting the odds together for, for the Olympics didn't think very highly of our team. And uh, we went in there and just had a really good chemistry, good group. Uh, the three goalies were Corey Hirsch, Manny Legacy, and myself. Manny and I are still really good friends now. And I, I talk to, I text with Hershey all the time. Another, another guy, another big advocate of mental health. Yep. And um, going into that tournament, yeah, it was, I mean, it was almost surreal. You know, we played against Slovakia and my idol, Peter Stasny, who at, at the time was like 40-something, I think, because uh, Peter, Peter was playing for the Slovaks and uh, we played the Swedes and the Swedes had Forsberg and Kenny Janssen and Tommy Salo. So there's, you know, there were some, a lot of great players came out of that, those Olympics, but at the time we're not very well-known players. Uh, so it was uh, it was a fun tournament for sure. And and you know you got to see a moment live that ended up on a postage stamp. And anybody that scores a goal like that now anywhere is said to have done the Forsberg move. That was an amazing move. And, and my my personal story to that is uh, Manny Legacy was supposed to back up the gold medal game, and Manny in warmups took a very heavy shot to the midsection. So, so the coaches came to get me like, Hey, you got to get dressed. You're backing up because Manny can't go. And, uh, so I, you know, I went and put on my gear. I had, you know, Hershey had played every game. So I hadn't played a game in three weeks <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm backing up the gold medal game. I uh, get my gear on. We, we start the game, get to overtime. Hershey gets run over. Uh, and he's giving it the shoulder. Like, I don't know if I can play. I can't move my shoulder and I'm just dying. I'm like, please get up. <laughs> Do not make me get in there. And he finally, he finally got up and, and finished the game. And, you know, you know, the rest is history. We lost in a shootout, but I could only imagine having to go in there and OT. Uh, I, I would, I would, I would have had a heart attack. I was like, please. And then the, the ironic part is after the game, they picked two guys from each team to do the, uh, the drug test. And I was one of the guys that picked <laughs> Peter Forsberg, Kenny Johnson, Paul Korea, and me. I don't know why they picked me. And they must have seen me in the gym or something. And uh, I had no problem getting through that test. I was like, man, I got to go so badly right now. It was uh, it was a two second test for me. 
but uh, yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting game for sure. Oh no, kidding! What where do you keep your silver medal? Silver medal. Right now, it's in the New Brunswick uh, Sports Hall of Fame. Nice. I, uh, I I gave it to those guys uh, about a year and a half ago, and it's on display there. Probably, you know, better better place than my house. <laughs> Uh, so you you briefly played in in Finland before the Olympic uh, tournament, and and you were the only North American on the roster, I think. So you were kind of like those Russians coming to Jets camp. What was that experience like playing uh, as the only one North American? It was very interesting. I, I was, and I'm still friends with some of those guys. Uh, we had we had a good team with it. Jokerit back then was was owned. Uh, until recently has been owned by uh, Harry Harkimo. And Harry Harkimo is one of the richest men in Finland. He owns all the newspapers. Uh, so every year he would go out and he would sign most of the best players because he would pay well. So I ended up going there uh, as the only North American, the only the only uh, single guy, me and, and this other guy, KK, uh, <laughs> was the only two, two single guys on the team. Everybody else had families. Uh, it was definitely a learning experience for me because I don't know if you've heard a lot of Finnish in your life, but it's a very impossible yeah. language to learn because there's no, there's really no base to it. There's no, there's no Latin roots to it. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a language on its own. So uh, it was a big adjustment for me. Uh, the language, the insomnia, because I mean, the sun, you know, when you're in the dead of winter, uh, the sun comes up at around 10:30 a.m. and goes back down at 1:30 p.m. Yeah, and uh, you know when you're not used to that, it really affects your system. So, uh, but you know what? I love that year there. Uh, won the championship. Uh, had uh, an unbelievable time uh, with with a great group of guys. Uh, I remember uh, well, you know Henry Yokiharu, who plays uh, in the NHL. His father was a really good friend of mine. Was on that team. Um, there's been a few guys that have had kids uh, turn pro that, that played on that team with me. So it's uh, yeah, it's a very uh, it, it, it's a good league, very good league. But that country is uh, is very different, even in Sweden. You know, like uh, you go to some of the smaller towns in Finland, very few people speak English. You know, uh-huh. they, they they still you know speak uh, Finnish only, and uh, it's uh, but yeah, I. I uh, I really enjoyed that year and it was a, very much a growth year for me uh, uh, life-wise because while I was there, everybody in Winnipeg got fired. Oh. And I remember I remember calling calling the office in Winnipeg and like Mike Smith, everyone from Mike Smith on down got let go. So I called the office, the secretary answers. I'm like, hey, I'm uh, I'm one of your players because I was still on the payroll with them. Like they, they just assigned me to Finland. And uh, the lady had no idea who I was. So I talked, I can't remember who that was. And I'm like, hey, like, uh, you know what's going to happen to me when the season's over here? He's like, he's like, hey, you sound like a super nice guy. I have no idea who you are. <laughs> he's like, when the season's over, the season's over. You get to go home. <laughs> I never felt like more like worthless as an athlete. I'm like, I guess, I guess I'm done in Winnipeg. Mm. And then sure enough, when that, when that season was over, the next year was a lockout year. So we didn't even play. Right. So then I had to find a minor league team. But yeah, I, was, I felt very alone at that moment. I was I was in Finland by myself, 
And this guy's like, yeah, we know we pay your, we, we pay your check every week, but we have no idea who you are. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. Who's the funniest player that you played with? Uh, the, like hockey players don't often show their uh, comedic side when we're asking them questions in scrums, uh, even if it's a lighthearted off day. But you get behind the dressing room, closed doors, away from the press. Guys show their uh, their true colors. Who are the, some of the funny guys? I would say Adrian O'Coyne was a very funny guy, very good trash. The funny guys are always the best trash talkers, you know, because yeah. they, they can shut something down on the ice really quickly with one quick, one quick comment. Uh, another guy, Ted Donato, who's now coaching at, uh, at Harvard. Uh, Teddy, very good one-timer guy. Uh, you know, you got the guys who like to play the practical jokes, but to me that the funny guys are the guys with the quick wit and, uh, and in hockey, it's amazing. Every team has that one guy. You know, like it doesn't matter what team you're on, there's that one guy that always knows what to say at the right time. And then there's always the other guy who tries to be that guy, but he's not, and everybody hates that guy. <laughs> that's right, yeah. That's <laughs> so, the guy you don't that's want, right? That's the makeup of every hockey, hockey team, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that one guy that chirps at the wrong time. Like, there's that famous clip of Brett Hall telling Sean Avery to sit down and shut up because he was chirping somebody on the opposition because they didn't want to rile him up, right? Yeah, yeah. There's always that one guy, and nobody can stand that guy. And they're like, ah, oh, just shut up. Like, you're not the other guy that's funny. <laughs> but yeah. but it, it doesn't matter what team you're on. That Those two guys always exist. No kidding. Uh, the most individually skilled player that you played with, who would that be? Probably Korea. You know, like he's, uh, not only was he skilled and, and he could skate, but man, he was always, you know, first one on last one off a lot like Ryan O'Reilly is now in the NHL. You know, you, you have those guys who are perfectionists that are never happy with their game and they're out there nonstop. And, and I think Crosby's kind of the same way. He, he was that player, mm-hmm. um, super skilled, uh, very, very quiet, very humble. Uh, but man, was he skilled. Okay. I'm going to do word association, one word for some of your former teammates. That's what we'll end with. But I want to ask you quickly about your life after hockey series. This is something that you talked about to the role of the agent. You're, you know, you're a financial advisor and, and you're also a, uh, a life after hockey planner. This is an interesting series that you have going. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, we, uh, you know, we thought it was important for us to, uh, let some of our guys express how they get ready for, you know, a career after their playing career. And uh, we always try to impress on our young players that the time to think about that is not once it's all done and nobody remembers who you are, but really when you're at the height of your uh, success in your career and you can really network and you can really use uh, that, that popularism that that you have with, with the fans to really build uh, a second career uh, so we, you know, what we've done is, uh, uh, I, uh, I asked Mike McKenna, former client, uh, forever client, who's now doing uh, TV with your brother, with mm-hmm. the, uh, with the Vegas Knights yep. to, uh, to do a series of interviews, short interviews with some of our players like Dale Weiss, who just, uh, invested in a, a mom spa business, uh, Colin Greening, who, uh, is at Harvard uh, business school. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of, we got guys coming from all walks of life uh, that uh, Grant Klitsum, who's helping us uh, put the program together also uh, on a day-to-day basis. And Grant played in the NHL and then had a back injury, had to retire. So he's, uh, he's kind of heading the, uh, the, the uh, after the game program. And, uh, 
Uh, it's interesting. The young players are finding it very interesting. Uh, they saw our social media stuff come out today. I've had a few of our young guys say, hey, can you email me the interview or how do I get it? Because I really want to see this. Uh, so I like that. It's getting traction and it's getting guys thinking about things other than hockey. And, you know, I, I played the game and, and guys often use the excuse, oh, well, I don't have the time. There's always time hmm. to, you know, to get more educated. There's always time to learn more and, and, and grow as a person. So to me, I, I never buy that excuse. Yeah, the, the amount of time I've talked to guys about the amount of time they have on the road uh, where you could pull out your laptop and start doing some stuff. And I, and I think it's great that young players can, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, having a, a different kind of business while you're playing as long as you, you know, don't let it affect your your actual job. So I love that. Uh, and, and, I'm, and I love that some of the younger players are getting excited about it. All right, let's do word association. Give me one word uh, for some of your former teammates and a former coach. And we'll start with a former Brandon Weeking, a guy I watched uh, growing up in Brandon and, and got to know him here as a head coach in Edmonton for the Oil Kings, Derek Laxdahl. Coach. That's, he was always going to be a coach. <laughs> so the first thing that comes to mind with him is even when he was a player, I could tell he was going to be a coach. Adrian Coin. Pop. That was his nickname. He was 18 when he lived with us. We called him Pop. I love that. Brett Lindros. Train tracks. If the game was played in straight lines, that guy would have been an all-star. Awesome. Another former uh, Brandon Weeking. I I saw he played three games with the national team. I don't know if you were a part of that, but Brian Prop. I was there. Uh, consummate pro. You know, just uh, a very nice guy, like very approachable. I liked him a lot. Corey Hirsch. Brave. You know, what he's doing with the mental health stuff. Very brave. Mm -hmm. I had him on a previous podcast. I really enjoyed the uh, conversation. Paul Correa. I will say talented. Some of my teammates may call him cheap. <laughs> but, but it's, uh, <laughs> we always we always give him a hard time about that. <laughs> he's like, he's like the guy. The I think it was Steve Buscemi character in Reservoir Dogs that doesn't tip, and they all got mad at him. What, what do you mean you don't tip? <laughs> exactly. He's gonna hate me for saying that, but it's true. <laughs> uh, Peter Nedved, effortless. Everything about him, the way he talked, the way he walked, the way he played the game. He just seemed like he was, you know, very effortless. Yeah, the, the little time I got to know him when he was in Edmonton was fun. Manny Legacy. Anti-science. The fact that that guy had that good of a career for that long with that body is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chris Contos. Uh, frustrating because he scored all the time in practice. He was so annoying. <laughs> I hated practicing against him. Well, and he had that crazy playoff run, too, that everybody remembers, right? Uh, Almost like him and John Drews are yeah. the two legendary playoff pool guys. And it didn't matter how he shot the puck. It went in all the time. It was As a goalie, it was very frustrating. Yeah. And finally, Tom Rennie. I would say diplomat. That guy, if that, if that guy was a politician, he would have done well. He is uh, he's very well-spoken, and uh, like he, he sells well. Uh, he was the perfect guy for Hockey Canada because uh, he does carry himself in a way that uh, a politician would. You know, like he's, he appeals to, to to everybody. Yeah, he he was uh, he handled some terrible teams in Edmonton during his time with absolute class and grace. And I thought 
you know, I love his quote, arrows up, right? It's just the, the absolute perfect quote. So I think all those things were great. Yeah. Elaine, this has been so much fun, man. I, I, I love, I can't, I got to get you back and we got to do some more stories because you got some great stories and you're a great storyteller and uh, obviously uh, doing some wonderful things uh, with uh, RSG. You can check it out at wasportsgroup.com. Uh, and, and I love uh, the openness that uh, you gave me about, uh, you know, what you guys do and, and how much you do and how important the role is because I, as I tweeted out it's more than just a percentage on a paycheck uh, the agent is sometimes the player's best friend and uh, it, it's it's nice to see um that that the relationship between the player and the agent is uh, so strong thank you so much for joining me best of luck much appreciated i enjoyed it thanks have a good day then the snow came down i smiled you frowned i said let's build a snowman Set your own, your own man. I said, let's bust out the skate sticks, took skis, boots, toboggans. You told me all downtrodden, I'll be in my room. All gloom and doom. Just because the snow came. This is the Sports and More podcast with Dean Millard. The day before the snow came. That was an awesome chat with NHL agent Elaine Watt. You can find more information at wasportsgroup.com. Very fun, very funny. Uh, open, honest, and important conversation uh, because uh, I love that they are discussing mental health a whole lot more. And if you know me, you know I'm a, a champion of discussing your mental health uh, with anybody, but in particular uh, a physician. Uh, if you are experiencing, um, you know, a change in mood, especially with what's going on, so I can imagine uh, many people out there listening uh, have, uh, you know, and I've had some really tough times uh, during COVID nineteen as well. So it's. Uh, it's certainly uh, no different than if you had a broken arm, you would go and get it looked at. Uh, I can I can put it as simple as that. So great conversation with Elaine Waugh and big thanks to Sweet Bejesus. That was winner Suckface from their debut album, Policeman's Creek. Sweet Bejesus is the official band of Sports and More, the podcast. You can find their debut album, Policeman's Creek, on Apple Music. And now it is time... Uh, for the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question. This is a serious message. Peace and love. Peace and love. Uh, thank you very much. Happy 80th birthday to the legendary Ringo Starr, uh, by the way. Maybe that should have been our top three or something like that. Your favorite Beatles songs, particularly uh, by Ringo. So 80th birthday. They're having a big bash for Ringo a uh, big concert. Uh, it's going to be on YouTube. If you are a Beatles fan, you can check that out. Our, our poll question brought to you by the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports Fantasy Platform. Uh, will COVID-19 knock a team out of the playoffs? Yes or no? You can have your vote at Duck Millard on Twitter. Will COVID knock a team out of the playoffs? Meaning, will there be so many positive tests that a team will have to forfeit and not be able to play because they're quarantined. 
Um, Andy said, I voted with optimism. No, crossing my fingers. Yeah, I, I, I hope it doesn't happen, but I just can't see with that many people and teams and in the hub and you're playing hockey, somebody is going to get tested positive. And then what happens with, what do you do with that situation? Um, this one uh, at the real Pat says, worst case scenario, imagine a bunch of positives on a team the day of a game seven of the cup final. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's just, what do you, what, what do, you do? Um, some uh, Murray Giacobo said, uh, most likely, but so would injuries, which I don't understand. Like I've, I've never heard of a situation where a team has had so many in physical injuries that they can't play anymore. Like too many blown out knees, but one person test positive on a team doesn't everybody have to be quarantined or is it only if it's your defense partner like i don't know how, how the hell is it supposed to work i don't get it as long as the guy's on a different line you're okay like wouldn't the whole team be quarantined so i don't know i, I my vote i might my i would love to vote no but i just don't i i, I could see that happening i could see a team being knocked out of the playoffs because they they had too many they had an outbreak hope it doesn't happen but i could see it happening you can get more details at uffsports.com it is the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question you want answers we are indeed looking for answers to that question your answer in particular Okay, perfect player now as we wrap things up. Uh, we talked with Elaine Waugh about the 1994 Olympic gold medal game, and now he, he thought he was going to have to go in, and he had the perfect seat for what has become an iconic goal, the Forsberg goal. So in perfect player, we're doing Swedish forwards. Here's how it works. You take three Swedish forwards, put them all together to make the perfect player. Be Dr. Frankenstein on this one. For me... Uh, Peter Forsberg is, uh, for me, the the best uh, Swedish forward. I know a lot of people didn't like because he was uh, would suddenly find it uh, impossible to stay on his skates and draw penalties, and other times it was impossible to knock him off, but he was so skilled. That goal in 94 was just the very beginning of an awesome, awesome career. So I'm going with Peter Forsberg and the Sedins. I mean, like, I think you have the greatest... Uh, Swedish forward uh, with two guys that think alike that can be in different spots, you know, on the ice, like sign me up for that. So the Sedins and Peter Forsberg is what I'm going with for perfect player. Would love to hear your perfect player. Swedish forwards might be, you know, Mats Naslund is out there or Marcus Naslund or, you know, there's, there's been so many great uh, Swedish forwards. So I want to hear who your perfect player is using Swedish forwards. Take three players, Combine them to make the best one. And that's it for us today. Big thanks to Elaine Raw from Wa Sports Group. What a fun conversation that was. We'll have one-timers out with him a little bit later on in the week. Hope you enjoyed the conversation today. And if you did, please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. And please leave us a review. It is so important for us to find out what you like and what you might think could improve the show. Constructive criticism, always welcome here on Sports and More. And if you'd like to be a part of the show, 
But maybe you think you have a good guest, you have a good story to tell, or if you'd like to advertise, we have a lot of cool things happening here at Podcast Alley that you can be a part of. Email me, sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. That's it for me this week. Big thanks to Elaine Waugh. To play us out, this is Sweet But Jesus, and this is the song Falling Fast. Playtime is over.